Good morning, I'm Paul, host of the new PNL Principles and Leadership in Business podcast series. Very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. We believe business needs a new PNL, one that is focused as much on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week on the new PNL, we had the privilege of speaking to founder and CEO of Tech 2025, Charlie Oliver. Sitting firmly at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation, Tech 2025 is a community and platform for professionals to learn about the next wave of disruptive emerging technologies. And it has quickly gained a reputation for helping professionals and companies to understand and embrace emerging technologies and the whirlwind changes they bring and to help them strategize for the future impact of accelerating technological innovation. So Charlie, a very warm welcome to the new PNL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I love your podcast. Thank you, thank you. In your role as founder and CEO of Tech 2025, you are you're at the intersection of so many fascinating discussions around the the future of tech and innovation. So I wanted to spend this discussion exploring your views on technology and on its role in society and business, and I guess too on its impact in leadership, because the, the age of automation and AI, it conjures up fear and excitement in equal measure, and that is excitement of all the possibilities of tech, but also the fear that we may all lose our jobs in the process. So how do business leaders harness the best of these technologies to make leadership and business stronger and more principled in the process? Well, that's a, that's a great question. It's also a really, I think the answer is somewhat multifaceted, layered, right? Um, we launched, I launched Tech 2025 in 2017 um, based on what I was already hearing and seeing in 2016 mm -hmm. from leaders leaders of big tech companies like Eric Schmidt and Sebastian Thrawn, leaders like you know, Mark Zuckerberg, who was at that time still in denial about the role that his platform played in the, you know, the election, the 2016 election and Russian hacking. So I, from the beginning, and even with hearing my clients come to me in 2016 and ask questions and express that they were really concerned about what the technologies would require of them, uh, how it would change their organizations. Even at that time, I began to ask myself the questions that you're asking me right now. So this is fascinating. And I have to tell you, I've lived the last four years exploring this question, answering it, <laughs> listening to others, um, being fascinated by where I've been correct and where I've been wrong. Yep. What I can say is my answer back then to the question that you're asking me in 2016, when I asked myself this question is the same as it is today. It has not, that has not wavered. My answer to executives back then was simple. How are you having these conversations and including the rest of your organization in the innovation process? Yes. That's it. And I would usually get sort of silence at that moment, right? Because innovation is very top down in organizations. And I would say, how is the secretary 
the male person, the, you know, how are they being included in this process? Do they even know where you're innovating in your company and what types of products are going out and what the future is? And so when that inevitably, of course, the answer would come back, no, you know, um, I realized, and they, I think, also realized intuitively, just by nature of asking the question, that they would have to basically restructure everything with regards to how they think about technology, period. Its role, its purpose, its potential, its problems. Mm -hmm. We have lived a very comfortable sort of, uh, especially in the past, I would say 10 years, right? But 2.0, we've lived a very comfortable, fun time of believing that technology is supposed to be easy and, you know, it's supposed to make everything more accessible and we never have asked ourselves really the price that we have to pay for this comfort, for this, you know, um, for, to, for just being able to use something that makes our lives easier. So I guess the other thing that I would say, in addition to how are you sort of including the rest of your organization and, and developing your bottom-up innovation strategy so that everyone feels like they're a part of the process, everyone, and that they feel like they're heard. The other thing, which is really important, is that the question that should be at the foundation, I think, of everything that is developed uh, technologically in, inside of organizations should be, you know, at what cost? Yes. Yeah. It's a hard question. It's a simple, it's a little tiny little question. But if we asked ourselves those questions before we rolled out, before we even began to develop a lot of these technologies, at what cost? This, and, and it costs us something, even if we don't realize what it is in the immediate. As a leader, it's, it's your responsibility to explore that question and to allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to receive the truth of the answer. And, th and that's a very interesting point, because at what cost, I guess, the addition to that question is at what cost to who? Yes. And, and you know, often yes. it's not those who are developing that have the ultimate cost or the price to pay, I guess. It's those who are the, the active, but also the unwitting recipients of some of the, the privacy issues and the data issues and some of the other contradictions in that ease of technology, if you like, and, and the, the perception of making life easier as a result. So I, I wonder what, there may be a responsibility, but what is the motivation of a large tech company or a corporation to, to also consider at what cost for who? Uh, now that is a great question. And I actually asked that question. Do you know, uh, Kathy, she wrote, I'm trying to think of her last name, Kathy, this is terrible. I'm terrible with last names. So jump in if you can help me. She wrote a um, weapons of math destruction. Right, right, right. right. Kathy, it will come to me. I apologize, but she's wonderful, brilliant. And she wrote a book basically on how, you know, algorithms, if companies don't begin to audit them and, and begin to sort of uh, operationalize the auditing of algorithms and data that they're using, that these things will cause problems, right? Mm -hmm. So she, early in her, in the launch of her book, was doing, of course, a book tour. And I went to speak to her. I went to see her at, uh, at an event here in New York City. And she spoke very eloquently for the entire, you know, process of the duration of the event about her experience going into these companies. Now, this was early on. This was like 2017 or 18, I think, when I went to her event. 
So companies were still sort of even, maybe even a lot of executives were maybe even in denial about what was happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, she said, you know, it's been a challenge. Two years of going into these companies and trying to convince executives to let us audit their algorithms to avoid potential problems down the road. And I have not got, at that point, she said she didn't have one client. So my question to her at the end of all of that was, what's the incentive for an executive to allow you to basically see their dirty laundry, yeah. right? Because <laughs> right. if you find a problem, they have to fix it. Mm -hmm. And if you find a problem, you know, that's a vulnerability that they may not be prepared to accept, much less deal with and fix internally. Yeah. And so the, the, this is where we get to the core of, again, going back to sort of at what cost and what leaders should do in terms of looking at this and trying to find the problem before the problem finds you. I think what's been happening over the past three, three or four years um, is that as human beings, this is how we learn. This is how we learn how to be more proactive. We get our butts kicked. Mm -hmm. And we've seen now for four years how the biggest tech companies, the most powerful companies in the world have been thwarted by their own you know, internal processes, technologies, and a lot of this has has sort of come to light through their own employees, yeah. right? Who make it clear to everyone they they'll put a comp they'll put their employer their company on blast. How many times have a, have Google employees you know staged protests and said they're not uh, this technology is even the engineers the engineers who are developing these technologies will say this is not right. This is not right, but yet they developed it to begin with, right? So how do we get to the point where um, we are, are, are anticipating and having the most thoughtful conversations about what it is that we're developing? Basically, it's reversing the, 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 it's reversing the entire sort of social ideas in, in Silicon Valley about moving fast and breaking things. And I think the solution to this is that I think organizations in general need to sort of embrace the idea of moving slowly when it comes to at least educating their workforce on what's happening. I tell my, you know, our, our communities this all the time at all of the events. In Web 2.0, they did it without you. In this coming phase of innovation, they can't do it without you. They have to have you there, right? Organizations cannot do what's needed to be done, whether it's de deploying products or figuring out ethics. They can't do it without their employees. So it's, it's, I don't know, I guess you have to allow yourself to be as transparent as possible and as honest as possible. And I think the other thing that I would say is, and this is, you know, it's debatable, right? It depends on the organization. It depends on the culture of the organization. You have to be willing to let go of a lot of the the, the the identity that you created in the culture that you created in this, this organization, you have to be willing to accept and at least look at the possibility that what you have been is not going to work in the future. But there's, a, there's an inherent contradiction in, in that, isn't there? Because you've got the proposition of slow, thoughtful innovation. And I absolutely agree with you that we need to have more inclusive, thoughtful, and slow innovation to 
to consider all of the costs to all of the recipients and, and to wider society. But we have a, an industry that has been fueled, particularly for the last 20 years, on, on quick high returns for Series A funders. And that's where, to my mind, that's where the fundamental clash comes, is the expectation of certain stakeholders, shareholders, and so on, and that community against the need to create tech for good, but not only tech for good, but I think, and this is the nuance, to create tech businesses for good as well. Right. It's pretty profound that we have to convince people to do good, right? That that model is not a part of, you know, your, your mantra, your, your, you know, just your company ethos, right? That it might be, but that doesn't mean that you're actively sort of doing things and empowering your workforce and your employees and your managers to actively do good in a way that's measurable, dare I say, right? Like, mm -hmm. what is the positive impact of what it is that you're developing right now going to be realistically on society, on those who are, let's say, disenfranchised? You know, the question is, how does it help? How does it hurt? Where does it help? Where does it hurt? Who does it help? Who does it hurt? Right? Back and forth. So, you know, this is a question that I think we'll be exploring for some time to come. But the fact of the matter is, you know, again, most often when it comes, especially when you look at what's happening, I mean, the business roundtable just two years ago put out a statement uh, basically giving executives, you know, 100 of the top CEOs in the country, right? Basically giving executives the permission to be ethical. To, to consider all the stakeholders, not just the shareholders, all of them. I think whilst that was, it, it should be, I think, given its due, right? Okay, that's great. I mean, we don't wanna sort of knock down it, something that could be really positive. Um, there was a lot of criticism around that yeah. and rightfully so. Number one, in my position, it's the fact that you even have to make that a proclamation. <laughs> Um, just goes to show that the, the depth to which we are sinking, like we can innovate ourselves and make returns that make everyone, the shareholders anyway, and the investors very happy, or we can innovate ourselves out of existence. Mm -hmm. And so we've been doing the, the former, right? And then suddenly we realize, oh crap, wait a minute. <laughs> if we stay on this path, we're going to innovate ourselves, literally innovate ourselves out of existence, right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the challenges within that, and there are many challenges as we as we innovate and develop technology over the next few years. But one of the inherent challenges is bias in the algorithmic process and in the technology development process and AI. And I guess my thinking around that is. The big challenge with bias in the system is that it isn't a singing, single linear, linear process. You know, humans with their own cultural and societal and life experiences are making assumptions all along the developmental chain and they're developing software and using data that is subject to similar or different biases and then providing that software to businesses who input other data based on their own subjective assumptions and analysis and you know AI systems are built from that so when we look at inherent biases in the system and we can probably both bring up many examples of where they exist but who should be responsible for defining what bias is 
in AI or in algorithmic um, development? And then who should be responsible for policing the standard once it's set? That's, that's great. We address this a lot at Tech 2025 because I, um, I'm of the mindset that, you know, yes, we are developing technologies that are biased or, or the data, you know, the data sets are biased. And, that, and that's a fact. Mm -hmm. It's, it was really, I think, naive to think that we would do anything but develop something that's biased. We are biased ourselves, right? I mean, I think we, we pretty much have gotten to the point now where, where everyone is on the same page with accepting that. And, and that's huge. We need, to, we need to look at that for a moment because that's a huge thing. Up yeah. until now, the very people, the very ones who were developing the technologies didn't even see that it could be possible that they were, their, their babies, right? Their, their, their products were biased or imperfect. So there's an arrogance there, yeah. right? An extreme arrogance. I mean, the kind that can really be detrimental to society, right? And while it may not hurt the people who are developing the technologies in the immediate, as we see, there's a sort of a, a reverberating effect of disenfranchising and hurting the ones who are, you know, very distant from the, the process or who are, you know, economically um, not able to speak for themselves. Yeah. So that's huge. And, and I think we're not spending enough time on that idea that we actually have reached a general consensus that this stuff is bias and it's going to be bias for quite some time. Now to move beyond that and to really get deeper into who, who should be policing this, why, what, I have to tell you, um, I don't think that every technical problem requires a, te a, a every technical problem requires a technical solution. I think I think that a lot of the problems that we face are social. They are us not being honest with ourselves about who we are, right? Because the fact of the matter is, whoever polices this this process now or in the near future, they're going to be biased, right? So I think it's, this is, and I see this as an opportunity, really, for us to understand our own biases, for us to understand why, you know, number one, the benefit of biases. You know, our, our biases have been evolutionarily beneficial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no one talks about that. And that's a huge thing, right? Um, we need to understand that before we can even ask to what extent do we want these systems to be void of biases because they're not going to be 100%. And then who should be policing possible? it? Is it I don't possible? Think, no. You know, anything is possible, right? But no. I don't think it's likely. <laughs> and certainly not in the near future. So I'm a realist, maybe even pragmatic, right? I, I feel like, you know, let's deal with what we have now on the table. Because when you look at, at listen, between the both of us, we can go back uh, two, three years and, and highlight some really egregious, like, you know, algorithmic offenses that have hurt people, right? Mm -hmm. Because the, the algorithm was biased or, you know, the data set was biased. Um, at the end of the day, and this is what no one talks about, but this is some of the stuff that we focus on at Tech 2025, the, bit, the problems the pain that those biased algorithms cause 
wasn't necessarily or primarily because of the algorithms themselves. It was because of how humans responded to the, to the error, right? So I'll give you an example of that. Uh, there, there was a gentleman um, about two years ago, a software engineer working at a big tech company. This was a big story. Uh, we covered it on a podcast. I did it with um, a, a great speaker who was the senior vice president of software engineering over at Viacom, uh, John Pavley. And we explored this topic of this software engineer who was fired by his company's system. They, they had this really elaborate, great system that's automated. You know, the, the processing of firing an employee was completely automated, right? So he goes to work. He, you know, he's thinking it's a normal day. His key card doesn't work. He can't swipe in. Finally, a manager comes down. He lets, she, she lets him in and I don't know what happened. You know, what's going on? And she doesn't know. And so they go into the office. He can't get into anything. He can't log into the system. He can't and so they find out that he was mistakenly fired, right? By the algorithm, by, by the system. That mistake was actually a human error. Someone, someone didn't renew his contract, okay? He's a, right. he's a contract and employee. But he wrote this blog post that was so thoughtful. Um, and it was this long post that went viral. And in the blog post, he said, the title of it was, I was fired by, the, by a machine. Yeah, a sensational clickbait. I get it, right? But the heart of what he was saying was, I was fired and my managers apologized to me profusely, but they couldn't rehire me. <laughs> they couldn't rehire me for two weeks because they couldn't override. They had to go in and read. Isn't that something? They couldn't override the programs and they had to go in and, and no one knew how to do it. And everyone was working in their own siloed ways. Yeah. And so anyway, the bottom line was he said, I quit. They brought me back eventually two, three weeks later, but I left the company. Now, why do you think he left the company? Well, I, I'm, yeah. Don't tell me, why do you think? Like a human, I guess. Well, it's, it goes a little deeper than that. And this is what no one, and this goes to the, this is to answer your question. Turns out that it wasn't just that he was fired. You know, we can forgive technology errors. We do it all the time. Our own phones fail us. You know, you know, I, it, as you know, getting on this call, I had a, you know, a couple of tech glitches myself, right? It's how we handle it. There's one thing to think that the computer is dehumanizing us, yeah. right? And I don't think most people feel that way. I think most people understand. It's just, it's, it's just stupid, it's software. It's, it's just an algorithm. But when people dehumanize each other because of the software, well, then you have the beginnings of the breakdown of society, of society in a way that we haven't seen before, right? Um, and so turns out this, this employee who was a software engineer left his job because he said that his fellow employees who he thought were his, like his colleagues, his friends, he had respect for them. He thought they felt the same way. Well, when it got around the company that he was fired because of the system, right? The algorithms, they began to think maybe he did something to deserve that. Right. Uh, maybe he did, maybe they're not telling us everything about this guy. And so then they, they began to treat him pretty much like crap. They began to alienate him in yeah. a way. And it doesn't even have to be something that's conscious, right? Like we do things to each other. We, we protect ourselves um, in ways that hurt other people. Again, this goes to, to us, our, you know, sort of our cognitive dissonance and our inability to see, um, to understand our own behavior and, and what drives our own behavior. But those employees were protecting themselves. They thought he's been ostracized by the algorithm. I've got to distance myself in case this doesn't 
work out. Anyway, at the end of the day, he said, that is why I left. Because the people who worked with me for two years didn't trust me anymore. Well, actually, that's really interesting because it reminds me of that. Um, there's a book I read 30 years ago, and it was on the Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde Islands uh, fight for independence against the Portuguese in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. And there was a Guinea-Bissau quote or saying, proverb, uh, no fist is big enough to hide the sky. <laughs> That's beautiful. And it makes me think about, you know, the algorithmic world or AI and algorithm of the sky and those who are trying to fight against or change bias in that system is like the fist and it's not big enough to hide that sky. So when it comes to bias and algorithms and AI, are we approaching it from the wrong angle? Are we, should rather than we be trying to remove it, should we be trying to find ways to compensate for it or to manage it? accepting that there is always going to be, not suggesting this is a right answer, I'm asking the question, but you know, are we coming at it from the wrong end? Should we be trying to find more innovative, creative, thoughtful ways of compensating and managing for it rather than ways of trying to remove it? Or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. I think yeah. if you look at our, you know, there are a lot of brilliant people in AI and AI research and you know, and AI ethics now, which is its own branch. And, and it's, you know, you can go to a million conferences and, and events on uh, a lot of the work that's being done, innovative work in the space, but the problems still persist, right? Um, if you just look at the results of our efforts to mitigate bias in AI over yeah. the past four years, that's your answer, yes. right? What are the results? We're still, still. Now, it may be a process that takes a while, but we should at this point be seeing the fruits of our labor in a way that, especially post, you know, as we come out of the pandemic, I think we're actually, I would say, except for the fact that this, this tremendous effort global now has made us more aware of the problem, right? of the problem in AI and the, and the biases and, the, and everything, I, I think we're failing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, think, I think we're failing. And I do think that we're going about this the wrong way. Um, there are things that I think AI, these technologies, cognitive technologies, whatever you want to call it, has to teach us about ourselves that we would not otherwise even face, but for the technology, right? Yeah. So if you look at the biggest errors, the biggest gaffes that have happened over the past several years, look at Microsoft, biggest, most powerful company in the world. Microsoft releases Tay on, on, on Twitter, you know, a bot that's supposed to learn from humanity about how to engage with other people, really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> really? I mean, the bot ended up becoming racist and anti-Semite and yeah. horrible, horrible. <laughs> well, it was on Twitter. So um, we tend to develop technologies and create and to create solutions based on the best case scenario. You know, we're hopeless optimists, especially in this country. And I'm not saying that that's a negative thing. I think that that has actually caused us to be more innovative yeah. um, in a lot of ways than other countries. I mean, there's a reason Silicon Valley you know, has dominated for the past 20, 30 years. That blind, hopeless optimism, 
where we develop based on the best of what we are, right? Has, mm -hmm. has brought us technologies that have, you know, changed our world for the better, yeah. right? But you cannot in any way think that there's not going to be a reckoning if you continue to ignore the worst of our impulses and what we are, or if you think that you can just do away with it by creating things that you think are going to make people happy and, and you know, make everything more convenient. The, the, the darker parts of who we are serves, I hate to say this, but it's true. It, it, it serves a purpose right now, right? It serves a purpose, it's there. And I think if we're going to develop these technologies and figure out how we can be more nuanced in understanding how to have sort of a constructive relationship with imperfect AI, with it, as much as we try to figure out how to have you know, perfect in, in relationships with ourselves that are you know, imperfect, if we can figure out how to do that I think that we will not only be better off, right? But I think that we'll begin to mature and become wiser with developing these technologies. You see, because right now we're still developing, I think, you know, we're develop developing them with a sort of an immature mindset. Again, that this is all for the greater good and everything is gonna be wonderful and everybody's great. And that's not true, right? So I, what I would say also regarding that is that what is required of leaders uh, now, and there's, you know, we can go into that. That's a really long conversation, but I think primarily the generals have to get back on the battlefield. Yes. Okay. And if you want to look at technology, you want to understand sort of the role of CEOs now and why they need to get back on the battlefield and how technologies have actually enabled them to distance themselves from the battlefield and from ordinary people over the past, uh, you know, 50 years literally on the battlefield, generals are no longer on the battlefields anymore because the technologies that we've developed from guns to, you know, just all kinds of electronics and things that we, you know, radar and everything, all of the things that we've developed have actually enabled them to, you know, distance themselves from the blood, the gore, the, the outcome, the pain, right? And I'm not saying that's a horrible, you know, there's a reason that that's happened. But I think when you look at what's happening in corporate America, the generals have been able to distance themselves and then to sort of convince themselves that they are seeing everything accurately and the way it is and that they are therefore able to lead the, their, their troops you know, into the future when the fact yeah. of the matter is they're missing these very important moments and consequences like this software engineer who feels so disenfranchised. So I read a really interesting article from Alan Rushbridger, the former uh, Guardian mm. editor, and it sort of relates to your point on the relentless optimism of um, Silicon Valley and the tech businesses in the US. And I absolutely agree with you. I think some of the incredible technological innovations that have come over the last 20, 30, 40 years couldn't have come without the inspiration and the, and the aspiration to go well beyond what was even imaginable but his his article suggested that for corporate for the corporate world today corporate america corporate uk and europe and so on the rest of the world that it should be their next hire should be a a moral philosopher because 
they need someone in that room and and there are plenty of other people that need to be in that room as well but they need someone in that room whose primary responsibility within the business is to look at the moral justification for what is about to be produced or innovated or developed what's your view on that I have to read that article. That's that sounds I'll great. I'll send it to you. To yeah. yeah, thank you, please. And I'll share it with our with our network too. That sounds great. So we did an event uh, two years ago called uh, I forget the full name of it, darn it, but it was basically the moral philosophy of tech CEOs, right? Mm-hmm. And their manifestos and their company manifestos. It was a workshop, and in this workshop, we asked people to look at the manifestos. Um, of and, and moral philosophies of the, and that's not a small thing because a lot of the tech CEOs, when now that you talk about moral philosophies, you know, you look at the, everyone from Steve Jobs to uh, Satya Nadella and Sundar Pichai, and it, they all are very philosophical, thoughtful, sort of, and, and the books that they recommend and the, and the, the ideas that have impacted them the most in leading the organizations are steeped in philosophy, um, spirituality, right? Um, mm-hmm. All of these amazing sort of loft, and, I'm not, and it's wonderful. I'm not saying it's not. Sacha Nadella gave his entire organization a book and told them, you have to read this book. I forget the name of the book. But, uh, uh, but he said, you have to read this book. It, is, it, it, it will help you to understand how to think about the future, right? Mm-hmm. And how, to, how we are moving forward. And it actually, I think a lot of analysts, I think credit, him doing that to helping the organization to move forward when he became the new CEO, right? To, yep. to, and yep. to do an accomplish incredible things. And you look at what Satya Nadella's, I mean, it hasn't been perfect. He's made his mistakes, of course, but what he has been able to do with a company that was once considered to be like Satan's lair, like, 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 like <laughs> right? When you think about what that company has been gone through and, and evolved from over the past, like whatever, 30 years, yep. it's incredible. How did he do that? Because now Microsoft is thought of as like sort of one of the more ethical of the of the big five, right? Yeah. Companies. Yeah. And, and indeed they, he's doing incredible things, you know? So we did this event and with that in mind, I wanted our community to, to, to really think about where the disconnect might be, right? Mm-hmm. From what these big, and we were just focusing on the, the big tech companies at that point what the CEOs of these companies believe in and espouse through their shareholder letters, through their whatever, you know, top 10 books or whatever, and the company manifestos, and then the, the, the results that are put out into the world from their products, yeah. right? Because there, there's disconnects there and we have to figure out what they are. And so to your point, that is, I've, I'm actually obsessed with that idea. And that's why we had that event two years ago. Mm-hmm. The idea that you need to not just have these very sort of philosophical questions and discussions, right? But that you have to have them, you have to operationalize it. You have to have that throughout the company and in and through your teams and one of the things that actually I have found in, in working with, uh, you know, at Tech 2025 over the past four years is that we've had, you know, all kinds of professionals come in and we ask them those hard questions, those philosophical questions and 
you know, about culture, society, what, mm. you know, our identity, which no one is talking about, the identity, what, who we, how we define what we are, who we are, and who we're becoming is very central to how we solve these problems, right? What we're willing to let go of and what we're not. Yeah. And I've learned that people, a lot of times in our groups, they feel like they've been robbed because they're like, no one's asking me these questions. I've had people say to me, no one at my company is asking me questions about this stuff that, you know, with, with regards to AI. And yet we've heard some incredibly profound things from our community and from, from people who come to us um, about how they're thinking about it. And, to you, and let me just tell you something. We've had uh, some of the leading developers of these technologies come in to speak at our events and to, to do think tanks with us with a, you know, a large, diverse audience. And I hear this all the time. And I'll say specifically Dr. James Fan, who co, uh, he co-created uh, IBM Watson, the one that beat the contestants on Jeopardy, you know, back in what, 2013. He said, you know, Charlie, you're, you know, based on your, like what I'm hearing from your audience, the questions, the philosophical questions that we're asking them, we in AI are really selling ordinary people short. They're far more creative and far more thoughtful and, and obviously far smarter about this stuff than we're giving them credit for, right? And and that's a that's a that sort of I think in that moment was a realization for him. But I've heard that from other speakers who come in. So you're so let me just say that we are actually I, I think that's really important. And I think that that's something that CEOs, you know, leaders should, you know, sort of cling to right now, because we've had a year of sitting in our own homes, in our own thoughts. And I think now is the time to glean from that time out last year, who we are and who we're becoming and how people are thinking. So this actually in a few weeks, we're doing an event on this. We're actually doing an event on um, a sort of technologists who have this is a face on, on a Pew Research. I'll give you the link, Pew, uh, Pew Research study on how innovators, technology innovators, a few of whom we've had at our events, how they're thinking about the year 2025 post pandemic, you're in the wake of a pandemic, um, how they think technology will change society and what it will look like in the year 2025. So we're doing an event on that in, in May. It's actually on May the 20th. And I insisted that one of the speakers be a corporate anthropologist. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that there is a desperate need for anthropologists in companies now and moving forward. Yes, I agree. I agree. Do you really? Yeah. Um, I guess one of the things that are in a lot of those people's minds that you're going to hold that um, summit with is that we saw a speed in development of the COVID-19 vaccines and it demonstrated from an innovation perspective what can happen and the speed at which can happen when absolute necessity meets, I guess, emboldened collective will. In your view, what leadership and innovation lessons can we take practically forward from the speed and the collaboration that we've seen over the last 12 months? How will that fundamentally change in your mind the way we approach innovation in the next four or five years? That is something that we've actually also talked about here a lot at Tech 2025. And I, I'm probably in a minority in saying this. Uh, I've, I, Unquestionably, undoubtedly, the 
it was phenomenal, the speed at which they developed the vaccines. Um, but I am one of the people who looked at that and said, oh, great, right? I, I was not impressed by it. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you why. It, it goes back to the, what I said earlier <laughs> regarding us worshiping the development of the technologies without thinking about how to have meaningful conversations around the technologies and, and, and what it means moving forward and how, now I know we're in a pandemic, right? So we have to move with speed. That's not, a, that's not an option, right? I, I get that, <laughs> right? But when you think about the fact that we knew that we had this virus, this global pandemic back in March, right? We, we were aware that, oh, okay, this is a big one. And they began to immediately you know, start developing this vaccine. I mean, it was just this incredible push around the world to develop the, you know, vaccines. The fact that between March and what, November, when did they announce the, the first vaccine? November to us. Yeah, it must have been November, I think. Right, yeah. November. There was zero dialogue between governments, uh, the the uh, pharma companies that are developing that there were there was zero dialogue with the public about what these vaccines are, what's going to happen with them, um, how is it going to be rolled out, what is a vaccine, why do they work, what do you think, you know. And I'm not just talking about you know quantitative research from from the public. I'm talking about you. They threw more money at that vaccine, at developing that vaccine, uh, than we've seen thrown at any initiative globally ever. Like right, like this was a big push. You couldn't slice off something to devote a budget to having public discourse when you had the public in one place, it couldn't have been easier. They were home, yeah, right? Yeah. And so then when it came time to start rolling out the, va- you know, the vaccines and everything, number one, they had a lot of problems, which is to be expected to some degree, right? Uh, you know, it's just, this is the first time we've gone through this and there were, there were logistical problems and issues, yeah. but these things, these issues that they had, whether it be the logistics, the communication between the pharma and the, the, you know, the governments and everything. These were things that could have been and should have been anticipated early. And these are the conversations that you have with the public so that they can anticipate those problems and understand, oh, okay, when they happen, I get it. It doesn't mean that you're incompetent necessarily. It just means that this system is, is, is trying to figure itself out. We have a new system of, of of you know, getting out vaccine supply and new technology. mRNA is not new, but how we're using it now, you know, with this this COVID nineteen, it's very new. And what I think they underestimated, and what I think executives underestimate too, is that people are no longer passive um, consumers of technologies the way that they were just a few years ago. Yes. And my one question, my one little doubt about your mRNA can really start a firestorm that thwarts any and all efforts that you have to the contrary to get this thing out. So I guess what I'm saying is going back to my original point with the lacking the wisdom and the the understanding that you have to bring in all of the stakeholders as early as possible to have these conversations. They didn't do that. 
and we're paying a price for it because there is a significant amount of vaccine hesitancy still. There has been a lot of negative sort of things going out there into the world about the MR and to some degree you can't stop that. I, I understand that. But there wasn't a thoughtful enough conversation about this and there still isn't, which is really frustrating. And so my question is, what are companies doing? Leaders of companies that have to, that have to figure out how to bring workers back into the office, right? Yes. They're now going to be in possession of, the, of really sensitive health data, right? They're gonna to have to make decisions based on that data, whether they get it or not. And are they having conversations with their employees about this? I probably, I think that for the most part, they are not, except for little, you know, surveys or whatever the case may be. I'm thinking that they're probably treading very lightly and carefully. And I understand that too, but this is not the time to be, you've got to be bold. Mm -hmm. And the question that I think managers and executives really should be asking their organizations isn't how comfortable are you today with taking the vaccine and maybe taking the booster shot and everything. But um, what if three years from now uh, we have COVID-23, you know, or we have another one, right? Um, how are you preparing um, your upskilling? What is it that you think you need to learn in order to be prepared for that and to help this organization to move towards that direction, right? Like, in other words, begin to bring employees back with the understanding that they have to help you figure out what the next four years are going to look like not just dictating that to them. So, so do you think, I mean, that raises a sort of broader conceptual question really as to whether with the pandemic, with the, I mean, we've still got an environmental crisis that was tucked away while we deal with that, but it's going to come back right. to us. And when you look at AI and the fourth industrial revolution, mm -hmm. do you think leaders need a different set of skills as we work our way into the 21st century, and if they do, if you feel they do, how do we, or how do they acquire those skills when in many respects, we're all trying to figure out where we are, where the world is at the moment? Mm, that's a great question. That's something that is also very much what we focus on here. And we just did it, as a matter of fact, I'll, there's a two-pronged answer here. The first is, I'm gonna go back to the idea that, yeah, to answer your question bluntly, definitely, these times call for uh, a different skill set. It doesn't mean that you throw away the skills that you had <laughs> before the pandemic, right? We all come with it. And here's the thing, here's what no one talks about, right? Because CEOs, let's just talk about the C-suite, right? The executives are, 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 you know, in the twilight of their careers, right? They are looked at as infallible. Uh, they have the experience, the wisdom. They have the skill set to get through any and everything that this company is, is, is going to go through, right? That, that's sort of like the belief, the, the, the myth around the CEO. The reality, right, is that if you've made it to that level of your career, you probably did it based on ideas and just, just uh, philosophies uh, that might not really be relevant anymore, right? In other words, we don't tend to become more um, experimental in our thinking as we get older, right? We yeah, become yeah. more set in our ways. And the fact of the matter is that clash, that, that understanding that now, uh, whatever it is we're becoming and wherever we're going, 
we're getting there quicker than we ever thought that we would. Like we're moving at breakneck speed. We're accelerating beyond, thanks to the pandemic, beyond what mm. we thought we would, right? Um, executives, I think executives have to realize that they, they may not have the skill set necessary within themselves right now, right? But that doesn't mean that they don't have the capacity to develop that skill set. They have to look within their organization because here's the thing, if you don't have it, someone or some group of people in your organization do, mm. okay? And so that goes back to going into the trenches, right? Going into the trenches with your, you know, and, 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 and really beginning to ask yourself, what will leadership look like for Gen Z in the next 10 years, yeah. right? And to that end, and I think this is a, this is something that I think is being overlooked. This is an opportunity that I think is being overlooked. A year ago, we did an event. This was just before the pandemic, right? With Major General Brett Williams. He's a major general in the, in the army, right? Brilliant man, brilliant career. He has retired. Um, he's worked with two administrations. We had him as a guest speaker. I brought him in. I said, he's also one of our advisors. So we really, we, we love him. He's brilliant. Um, we did an event on leadership in tech companies in the throes of the protests that were happening. A lot of the, the employee activism. And I said to Brett, I want you to come in and talk to us about multi-generational leadership. And I, and, and what I mean by that is multi-generational leadership in the sense that you now have primarily young people right now protesting. There's all different ages I know, but the young ones in companies, the Gen Zs or the Zillennials as they call them, they are rightfully so a lot of times pissed off. Mm-hmm. They're angry. They don't, want to, they don't want to be like millennials. They don't want to be like Gen, Gen Xers. They see the writing on the wall, right? right? So I, the, the whole idea behind the event whether it was right or wrong or whether it worked or not, the idea behind the event is, okay, if you're a leader in an organization of a big tech company, for example, and your entire, you know, or a majority of your employees or your workforce is angry or they're protesting, which by the way, that, that's happening more and more. That can happen at, on the drop of a dime. And it might be something that, that's reasonable or unreasonable. But if that's happening, and if it's happening repeatedly, like it is happening with these tech companies, it's your responsibility as a leader to not only understand that, understand why that's happening rather than to just quelch it or, or, or play into it, right? But your responsibility is to find the leaders within that and to understand the new leadership dynamic that's being sort of, per, you know, that's percolating and being developed within that. And I say, I'm just saying this myself, to push back on that a little bit. It's okay. It's push back on that. I think there's a fear of pushing back on employees who are protesting and who are, you know, when you get that anger or that, that disgruntled kind of, we have to have that push and pull between the different generations because we're, we're now, we have five generations in one workforce now, which is insane, right? Yeah. So that that's one way is to, is to, to find the, not just the spark in, in your company that's like, find the friction, right? And I think be as close to that as possible. And also bring 
the younger generations into the decision process in a way that helps them to understand the skill sets that are still needed that they don't have. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which is crucial, right? Because there's a lot, I mean, look what happened last year in the pandemic, right? Who did, who did well during the pandemic and who suffered, right? The yeah. young ones really suffered. They just didn't have the skill set. They didn't have their young, right? The older ones, the older you go, you, you get up into the baby boomers and everything, they did great. They, 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 well, yeah, it's, I've got this. It's challenging, but I've got a little money. I got, I'm good. I'm home. I, I, I'm blessed to have a job where I can just be at home and everything. So there's an exchange of information and ideas that needs to happen in a more uh, substantive, organic way, not with the technology. It may be facilitating that, but they've got to, I think, I think leaders in, in companies really need to, um, have these dialogues and, and they need to be aggressive and consistent with them. Because as I said a few years ago, the problem isn't just that the technology is innovating and at an accelerated pace, but we are too. Yes. Yeah. And if we don't understand who we are becoming as we're changing um, so quickly, you're going to always be missing the mark. But key, key to that as well, and, and this is where I think there is a, there is a, a challenge, is also as a leader, and you, we can go back to your earlier point where, you know, some quite often leaders today and, and many businesses are too far removed from the coalface or, the, or the, the fighting ground, if you like, but it's also leaders recognizing where their own assumptions on certain key societal issues come from and questioning the assumptions upon which they they view those things. I mean, I had a previous guest two or three weeks ago and, and he made such a brilliant point. He said, so many of these issues are talked about in binary political terms, but actually they're not political terms. They are, they're human rights issues. And, mm -hmm. but if you come at it thinking that if this is a, a political protest or whatever it happens to be, your mindset as a leader focuses on certain assumptions that perhaps aren't correct. But if you see, lots of these things as human rights issues and question the assumptions upon which you're you're viewing that particular thing then it changes your mindset and your attitude towards it i think absolutely 100 percent. i couldn't agree more and they are actually poisoning the new well of water right mm -hmm. the, the next generations that are coming into the workforce and I, and I don't think that we're listening or looking at them or talking to them enough. I always say, you know, if you want to know where we're going to be in five or 10 years, you talk to, you look at what's happening with these kids and how they are. And I know that's kind of cliche, but how they are defining and redefining the reality or, or how they are engaging with the technologies. And, yeah. and, and there's, a, and we've done events on that as well um, because you know, if you're 10 years old, if you have a kid who's 10 years old today in 10 years, they're gonna be, they're gonna be running things, right? Maybe yeah. not at 20, but but yes, I, I, I would argue that uh, in 10 years, we're probably gonna be turning over the reins of leadership to, to 20 something year olds down to 2021 20, easily, yeah. easily, yeah. easily. We got two generations, well, one generation that's definitely retiring in, in the next five to 10 years, right? And in another generation, Gen X is gonna be kind of like, Probably, I would guess, because of the transfer of wealth that's coming, that's happening, I would guess that Gen X uh, is probably going to exit the workforce earlier than baby boomers, 
<laughs> it's like, look, I got my, I've got money. I got my, I'm good. I'm going to start my business or I'm out. Right. Yeah. And, and so there's this, this crisis of leadership coming. Um, and I would go further as to say the collapse of a lot of companies. You, you, no one is talking about the fact that we're going to see a massive collapse of companies over the next five to 10 years. I'm talking about not just mid cap, but mid cap and above, right? Companies just that could not transition quick enough. The companies where the leaders could not get out of their own way yes. to make this transition, right? And so to that end, you know, a few years ago, this is when we first launched, I wrote a, a blog post that was called Redefining Innovation, you know? And I basically said that the, the, the idea how we've defined innovation for the past 30 years or whatever has served us um, well, you know, and that definition is what, you know, to innovate a product, to develop something new, whatever. Okay. Um, the fact of the matter is we always begin the process of innovating with looking at what we want to create, you know, what needs to be changed, what could be better and uh, what we're going to get as a result of that. My thinking around that is actually the opposite, that we need to redefine innovation through the lens of um, letting go of something, not creating something. Because in order to create something great and, and some of the best innovations, technologies in the world required us to let go of the very things that we thought we couldn't let go of. I mean, look at what Steve Jobs did with the, with the iPhone, right? Yeah. Wait, you know, I have to let go of my BlackBerry, the, the keypad. Were you kidding me? <laughs> right, right. Like that's everything, dude. Like, right? Um, <laughs> are you kidding me? Don't be crazy. That's just crazy talk. You know, fast forward 20 years and we've got babies swiping on the foot, right? Um, and so the question should be with regards to, to all of us, really, but when you're talking about innovation and leading companies forward, I think, is for executives, um as a leader. What do I need to let go of? Because when we fail, and what I mean when we fail colossally, it's usually because we are holding on too tightly <laughs> for too long the wrong thing, right? So we're holding on to the wrong thing too tightly and for too long. We should have let go of it a long time ago. And there are things and ideas that and, and ways of thinking and doing things that executives are holding on that managers are holding on to that they're not even aware of. And the only way that you become, can become aware of it is, is by coming out of that glass, that little ivory tower and, and getting into the trenches. And here's what, what else I mean by that too. Um, we've got a multi-billion dollar business of you know, executive leadership courses, which is great. I'm not saying they're not, obviously, you know, that's, that's great. But I think those need to be innovated as well because you're basically getting executives together and I've had to speak at a few of them, right? And you're basically saying, this is what you guys need to do. We're gonna give you some, you know, um, you know, workshops and you're gonna do some, some, we're gonna take you out into the woods and you know, you're gonna do something really challenging and, and everything. And, and I just don't think that that's enough to help leaders figure out the skill set they really need. We've got enough problems on the ground in real life. You want to get an executive to figure out what their skill set should be, have them to come out of the companies and go into these neighborhoods and to see what's happening in these neighborhoods. Have them see what's happening. And we had a, a, a gentleman um, who came in, he was incarcerated and for 30 years for murder. 
and he was due for parole and he was denied because the algorithm was biased. And it turns out that there was a big problem with the algorithm. Um, but we have vulnerable populations that are being negatively impacted by innovation. Um, they read about that stuff. Do they get to talk to people who are hurting? Where's your empathy factor? What is your empathy factor? Where's, where, you know what I mean? Like in other words, that's, that's the fundamental difference between innovate when your head when your head believes you're innovating for people but actually you should be innovating with people that's the difference between the two isn't it because your assumptions in the former you can only base your assumptions on your own life experience not necessarily the life experience of those who you're supposedly innovating for and if you are if your argument in return is i'm taking the data and I'm developing on the basis of data, then you've got the other circular argument of what are the inherent biases in that data that are not providing with the information you need to develop exactly. with rather than for. Exactly, exactly. And it requires letting go of the idea that you not only have all of the solutions, but that you have to have all of the solutions within yourself or That's within right. that top That's tier. Right. It's it, Because as I said, three years, four years ago, when I launched this, they can't do it they're not going to be able to get us through this without bringing all of the stakeholders in. And, and, my, and I said this at an event at Techonomy, it's a room full of executives, about 150 um, you know, C-suite executives. This was two days after Trump uh, won the election in 2016. So it was a very emotionally charged moment. moment. And you know, everybody was just stunned, right? Remember that, right? Everyone was like, oh my God, what is the future gonna be? And so uh, I said to that room, of executives, and I stand by this, uh, y'all are shocked and offended, and I don't begrudge you your emotions. I think what you're feeling is valid for you and your experience in life. But women, people of color, <laughs> they all of us, we've been pissed for a long time. Mm -hmm. You're pissed today. We've been pissed for the past. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're getting crumbs from the pie that we helped you bake. Yes. And if you think that this right here is discomfort and the height of what you can go through in terms of shock and awe, and I actually said this, you wait and see what the next five to 10 years is gonna bring you because if you don't learn to give, and it's not even about, you can't even really look at it as you giving people a piece of the pie. You shouldn't, it's, it shouldn't even be framed in those terms. You don't yes. give me what I helped you bake. I'm the co-creator of this. I, mm. I deserve, I deserve to be here, right? And I, it sounds like a sense of entitlement, but they have a sense of entitlement at that level a lot of times. And I think it's, it's un, we have to even rephrase our, 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 how we talk about our language, absolutely. Our language, right? Yeah. There's a technology we need to change, right? We need to change. <laughs> and that's why, and listen, let me tell you something, by the way, with regards to, to, to that, even like writing things down is, is really, really profound. I mean, that's technology, right? The pen and the paper, yeah. which is really funny because we do that at Tech, at Tech 2025. I um, have the events transcribed and uh, we listen to people, right? In the rooms and everything, everybody gets to say what they want to say. It's a whole different ballgame when you read what someone says yeah. <laughs> and you realize that, uh, oh, geez, I totally missed this. This is profound. This is why, and I'll give you, and just quickly, um, with regards to what you're saying, we had an event 
uh, three years ago, we, we, this is a, this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about right here, where it was on blockchain. And I was very careful about doing events on blockchain with, with this, with our audience, because especially back then in 2018, it was still very confusing and very, you know, intimidating. Anyway, the event was based on the Daniel, not Daniel Radcliffe, what's his name? His last name is Rad, I think it was Brad Radcliffe, Joe Radcliffe, the billionaire who had the empire, the, the sort of hyper-local news empire, right? Where he had all these websites, DNA, DNA Info, all covering hyper-local news across the country, neighborhood news, right? He fired all of his journalists, basically when they decided to um, unionize. He fired the journalists and he took down the publication. He basically got rid of the company. He left the company. He said it's a wrap. So that that reverberated because those hyper-local news outlets online, I mean, they were digital, right? But they really served a purpose in communities. Yeah. And so we, everybody was just shocked. Like, how could this billionaire just decide to, to cut the cord and just like walk away? So, well, he just did, right? So I said, there's a company called Civil Media that just launched. They just launched a, you know, a month ago uh, with it was a consensus company. And it was run by, uh, it was founded by, uh, what is his name? Um, he's all of a sudden, I can't think of his name. Uh, he's, the, he's one of the people who basically ran Google's news lab. Daniel Cyber, that's his name. Mm -hmm. And he came in and I said, Daniel, I want you to come in and talk to us about this blockchain platform that you guys have created. Because what you're saying is that this is the solution to the problem that we just experienced and that blockchain is going to democratize hyperlocal news and it's going to put the power back into the hands of the people so that this doesn't happen anymore. They're going to be the ones to make money off of this and whatever. He said, Charlie, I'll do it. It's great. He came in and he gave this, this great presentation and the room was full of local journalists, yeah. some technologists and everything. And the funny thing about that that happened is that after he gave the presentation, they, they pretty much, most of the room didn't like it. They hated it. They said, ah. They asked some really smart questions. They said, nah, we didn't, we didn't. no, it's not, it's not working. And they asked smart questions. These aren't people who are, and so afterwards we transcribed it and I sent him the transcription and I said, Daniel, God, we got a lot of pushback on this blockchain platform that you guys get. You might want to look at this. Just look at it. And if you want us to do another event to clarify what people, the apprehension that people have about this platform and the technology, let me know. We'll do another event to, mm -hmm. to, to double down on it. They never got back to me. But anyway, six months later, their ICO failed. Um, they actually ended up going out of business. And a lot of the, the analysis about what went wrong with that was that was very similar to the feedback that the audience gave, our audience gave them. So what's the point of all of this? It's that it's not enough to just listen to people who are telling you, and these are ordinary people, right? Who are telling you that something is wrong with what it is that you're developing. Even if they are not clear on why they feel the way that they do, but they're telling you there's a problem here. It's not enough to listen to them. You have to act on that. Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely. the response, but that's the moral obligation. And, and I think that's what's missing in, in companies that you get, it's not enough to just take the, to take the quantitative and qualitative data in from, from you know, the public and let's just hear what they say. You gotta act on it. 
and then come back to it and revisit it and do it again and do it again and do it again. So anyway, I, I think that the, the, that's a, a huge part of this. Um, it, we, we have to double down on getting at the heart of what people are thinking and feeling and allowing them to express their ideas in a way that will give us actionable insights. Charlie, I think that is a, a brilliant piece of advice upon which to end the podcast. Thank you so much for your discussion today. It's been a, a real pleasure, a real pleasure. Oh my goodness. I can't thank you enough for having me. It's wonderful. I could talk to you forever about this. And thank you so much for just the great questions that you're asking and the great work that you're doing. Um, we need more of this actually. <laughs> too. It felt like every answer we could run another mini series off of today, actually. <laughs> easily, easily. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate your time today, Charlie. Thank you so much. I do too. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you'd like to learn more about what Charlie and her team do at Tech 2025, please go to tech2025.com. That's tech2025.com. And the links will also be in the notes that accompany this podcast. If you like what you've heard in the conversation with Charlie today, please do take a moment to pop back on Friday for the new PL to the point, where we will break down and analyze today's conversation with Charlie and look at some of the key points that you can go away and think about and use in your business. Finally, please do take a moment to review us or to rate us if you enjoyed the conversation today. We genuinely appreciate it and it genuinely helps. I'm Paul, host of the new PNL. Thank you once again for listening and have a great day.